we start? A lot of people away. A um, couple of things. The, the books are back there. Um, I'm encouraging everybody to buy a copy because otherwise Suzanne and I are going to get stuck with the amount. So please buy these from us, even they're they're more expensive. We get a good price at Amazon, but but the books are all back there. Um, I'm going to send out a note to everybody, probably today, today or tomorrow, just encouraging everybody to read Boethius next week. Next week, you know, is the in the is the week in which. I'd like to put the two worlds together, the Protestant Catholic. What I plan to do next week is give a brief, very, very brief overview of some of the principles that we took away from the reformers, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, some of the others, just to briefly call that to mind. Um, I want to point out what you already know, that. Dante was looking at corruptions in the church every bit as great as Milton. Um, we've seen that. There, there is not a level in the Paradiso in which he doesn't make a severe denunciation <coughs> of some corruption in the church, in the priests and the papacy. <coughs> so the, there's not less corruption during Dante's time for a Catholic world than there is. But the way of dealing with it in the Reformation, as you know, is very, very different. Um, it led to all the schisms and what I called months ago the, the confusion that we, we've inherited from that period and that we're still living with. So I'll, I'll just put out the principles as briefly as I can and, and, and um, recall some of the main principles for Paradise Lost and the Commedia, just to set the two works next to each other. They're both epics. Both of them saw themselves as epic poets. Both of them saw themselves as writing in the epic tradition. You know that. Both of them radically changed it but in very, very different ways. So I'm going um, to just set that out as briefly as I can because I'd like to leave as much time as we can, in my mind, most of the class, to hear your responses. I, I know the basic question that I'm going to lead with is, um, what were your thoughts? What did you take away from your reading of the two poems, Paradise Lost and, and The Commedia? And more importantly, what are the implications? If we set them next to each other, do we learn anything about our faith? What, what, what did you learn? Um, because that's, that's subtler. It's, it's, it's harder to go, it's harder to answer those kinds of questions. But, and I'd like to open it up. Um, it may get rowdy, I have no idea what's gonna happen. Um, but that's what, that's, what, um, that's what I'd like to do next week. So we'll finish off this what to me has been really good, I mean, to look at our Protestant Catholic faiths and set them next to each other to see what we can learn. The following week we're going to do Boethius. So in the letter that I send out, I think Doc is going to send it out today or tomorrow, I'll write a letter encouraging everybody to read Boethius next week because we've, we've got this break. You won't have to do any reading. Well, I'm going to encourage you to read Boethius over the week. We're going to do Boethius in two weeks. I'm going to do, it's just not that hard. I mean, it's, 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 a very short, it's a very short book. And I think I can cover the main points. And I think you'll be surprised, really surprised and strengthened. Um, to read Boethius is to realize in some ways how, um, how, how, 
how much we don't think very well in our age. We're, we live on surfaces too much. Boethius was an ama amazing writer. I, you, I told you, I think Chaucer loved him. Um, Dot, or, uh, Aquinas, remember, identifies him as one of the great fathers of the church in that circle when he does that praise of the Franciscans and the Franciscans praise the Dominicans. A great, great thinker. He, he has a, a piece on the Trinity that I think is one of the foundation works for our understanding of the Trinity. It's really good. <clears throat> and then he did the consolation. We will do the consolation in two weeks. So I'm going to do the first two and a half books the first week we meet in the last two and a half books. Um, I think we can go through them pretty directly. And I think, I hope you'll be glad to read it. And then we'll do Chaucer, and we won't be able to spend too much time. We'll just get Chaucer going and then break for the summer. Chaucer loved Boethius. Um, and actually, there be you'll see this, there will be some images that Chaucer takes from Boethius and uses in the Canterbury Tales. In the opening chapter, there's a talk. There's some. There's a section in which he talks about um, the relationship between freedom and love, which is the central theme of the of the story that we're going to open with before we stop the, the night's tale. Because if I think I summarized it, these two knights fall in love with the same woman, and um, and and they're in jail, and. Um, can't fulfill their love for her. Um, one of the prisoners is released and the one remains in jail and the one who remains in jail at least gets a glimpse of her because she's close by. The other one is exiled from the town and, and you can see that Chaucer's dealing with this relationship between freedom and love and, and, and it's going to be absolutely Catholic. I'm not going to give it away. But he got that from Boethius. <coughs> Boethius does because remember Boethius is in jail. His whole life has been taken away from him. He has, he has every reason to complain, even though Lady Philosophy is going to come to him and tell him, you have no reason to complain, shut up, stop your whining. Um, and um, so it's a good book. Um, I'm glad to go back to it. It's been a pleasure for me to pick it up again. So we'll do that the following week. So if you could get started on the reading of it now, I think you'll enjoy it. By the time we start it, you, you should have it read. Okay? Any, any prayer requests? <coughs> Let's start. In name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um. <clears throat> Wonderful words to us this morning, Lord. Um. <coughs> First reading was from the from Acts, right? Paul's, yeah. Um, so, what a wonderful story! This man went from being one of the Christian world's greatest persecutors to, in some ways, its greatest disciple. He took you out to the world. Um, it's wonderful to read Paul, um, to have given his life the way he did, to have risked his life in the journeys, the imprisonments that he suffered. <coughs> To take all that great learning, um, all that great learning, and turn it so that um, in all the ways in which he directed that learning to dark ends, 
Um, it got turned, and he made it one of the greatest offenses of our, of our faith. He, he is our first great theologian. Um, the first great theologian in this sense, too. He didn't have a theology behind him. He was describing you, Lord, immediately, walking around the world. But he took what was right in front of him, not from a book, right, and used his learning to make you clear, to, to draw the theology, the beginnings of a theology out of what you were doing. What amazing work that um, we have this from him. We offer our thanks, Paul, for your great work for us and your example. Um, ask that we all uh, take you seriously and learn from you, take you to the world. Um, we're grateful, Christ, for the gift of yourself this morning. We carry you within us. Um, and um, the Gospel reading, where we're taken back to the, um, the Eucharist discourse and reminded that um, by taking you into us, um, we have life with you forever. Um, help us to carry you all this day, um, to protect you, to draw our life from you, our direction, bring you to the world. Um, strengthen us with that life um, that we can give ourselves to what you're asking of us, all of us, each in our own way. We offer these prayers through you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Son, Holy Spirit. <coughs> can you pull out the Easter palm? <coughs> I think I've warned you all, because I'm not sure what we're going to do with the lyrics. We've only got a couple of weeks, so I, I don't see myself doing it before we break. But we're going to do the wreck of the Dutchland, Hopkins' The Wreck of the Dutchland, I warned you. It's going to be probably the hardest poem you've ever read and one of the greatest. But when we get back next, next fall, um, this is... Um, Herbert's Easter on the last page. Do you all have it? George Herbert, Easter. Rise, heart, thy Lord is risen, sing his praise without delays. He takes thee by the hand that thou likewise may him mayest rise, with him mayest rise, that as his death calcine thee to dust, his life may make thee gold and much more just. Awake my lute and struggle for thy part with all thy art. The cross taught all wood to resound his name who bore the same. He stretched sinews, taught all strings what key is best to celebrate this most high day. God, what, what a beautifully, what a beautiful grotesque image that his sinews were stretched on the cross in that horrible, asphyxiating, crucifying death. And um, those sinews became the strings of an instrument, could play a beautiful tune out of them. The cross taught all wood to resound his name who bore the same. He stretched sinews, taught all strings, what key is best to celebrate this most high day. Stunning image. Consort both heart and lute, and twist a song, pleasant and long. For since all music is but the parts vied and multiplied, 
Oh, let thy blessed spirit bear part and make up our defects with his sweet art. Notice the metaphor, how the metaphor of music runs through the, the lines, the descriptions, and how he reinforced the sense of music by, by that little tag rhyme at the end of each line. Sing his praise without delays, thou likewise, likewise with him may rise. It's like a harmony, like a, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the return of a sound, picking it up again to make a harmony. Oh, let thy blessed spirit bear part and make up our defects with his sweetheart. I got me flowers to straw thy way, I got me boughs off many a tree, but thou was up by break of day and brought thy sweets along with thee. The sun arising in the east, though he gave light and the east perfume, if they should offer to contest with thy arising, they presume. Can there be any day but this, though many suns to shine endeavor? We count thee three hundred, but we miss. There is but one, and that one ever. Easter. Okay, let's start. <coughs> I want to, um, the last couple of weeks I've, I've gone back to this theme of literature as prophecy, even though it's secondary to the Protestant, seems secondary to the Protestant Catholic thing we've been doing. Some of the parishioners in the evening have um, been questioning the prophetic nature of literature. It's, it's a story, so it's easy just to read as a story, and I, you know I've been suggesting all along that really great, great works of literature um, distinguish themselves from others because there is something prophetic to them. We've gone over that um, enough to let it go to rest here. Just a couple of things before we leave it though, because this will be the last time we do it until we pick up with the literature prophecy course again in the fall or after this in a couple of weeks. Um, Remember that the word epos, epic, because we've been reading epics, the word epos means word, <coughs> song, reason. Um, it's analogous in some ways to the logos, but epos, epic, means a word, a song. But the connotation it had in the, in the ancient world was always a divine word, because the... the uh, Fire drill? Do we run outside? What are we supposed to do right now? That was a clown drill. <laughs> Get under the tables? What do we do? Um, One by one. Put it outside. Put it outside. Boy, that took me back to grammar school with all those oh, fire drill days. Yeah. And, um, oh, <coughs> divine word. Epos means divine word. Because remember, one of the things that distinguishes the, no the epic from the novel, the modern novel, is that in the ancient epics, the poet made an invocation of the gods, Calliope, to help tell this story, because the story involved the gods interacting with humans. They were, they were helping to address some disorder. Right? We've been going through this, so you all know it now. In the modern novel, that's not so. The modern novel comes into existence after the, around the time of the Copernican Revolution. It marks a, a change in the way narratives are told. We move into an empirical world a more scientific 
scientifically oriented world. But in the epic, the poet is, is asking the gods to help him tell a story um, about some disorder and heroic acts of a person um, to, to answer that disorder, to, to bring a new spirit to a people, a whole people. That's why Homer was called the educator of Greece and actually the educator of Western civilization because the Iliad and the Odyssey are two founding works. They, they go to this fundamental principle of human dignity to every human being. That's what Achilles struggles with. Odysseus is struggling with marriage, the disorders in marriages. So the homecoming, the, the conclusions that both those epics move towards um, are a reaffirmation of the two of the probably the two most important values in the human soul. This inherent dignity that man had. The, the disorder of the Iliad, remember, is everybody's values, everybody else, by the amount of wealth they have. They're, they're in a war for nine years. That war should have ended. It doesn't end because people want wealth. They're just pushing it to have booty. Um, if, it, if Achilles had not broken from that world, we would have never seen the end of that war. It would still be going on. It is still going on, actually. But he brings a different spirit. There's a transcendent order. The gods are involved with him. He's bringing something new to this world to answer this disorder. Odysseus does it with marriage. Okay? <clears throat> so the ancient epic, the epos, had to do with a, a divine word. The gods are speaking through a person. So in lots of ways, that's analogous to what the Hebrew prophets did with the chosen people. God's speaking through them. We don't look at the ancient epics as um, prophetic in the way that we do the prophetic, the biblical tradition, but there's a prophetic <coughs> element to it. And you remember every one of the epics ends with a parousia, the second coming, the return of the king. Those are amazing, amazing coincidences, or, or not coincidences. Um, <coughs> That, that tradition carries forward through Dante and Milton, okay? So Dante and Milton both see themselves as writing in that epic tradition, and both, both of them see themselves radically changing it. You remember Milton's treatment of the heroic theme, and, and you know how much Dante changes because the epic hero in Dante is no longer this powerful knight. That was the ideal of the Christian Middle Ages, King Arthur, Lancelot, they carried that, that spirit of a warrior forward, but baptized, Christianized. That was the ideal in the Middle Ages, the Christian knight. Until we get to Dante and, and Milton, and both of them radically changed it. <coughs> but we've been talking about the, this prophetic element. I just want to add one thing this morning for you to think about, um, to put this prophetic quality in a in a, in a proper context. Um, and the reason this came up is because somebody was, was commenting, saying that, that this is just a story, you know, it's just a, it's a fiction. And you know I'm contesting that all along, I don't believe it's just, I mean it is a fiction, it's a, but the, the truth of it for me goes way beyond what other fictional works do. Um, one of the most important things to remember about Dante is this. Um, I believe that one of the reasons Dante does what he does so well is because he lost everything in his life. And we've seen how important that is from the very beginning in the Iliad. Um, remember, it, it, 
the, the Trojan War has been going on for nine and a half years when Achilles withdraws. When he withdraws, he establishes the pattern of the epic hero. Because what we find in every epic hero afterwards is that every epic hero um, ends up isolating himself from his people. He sets himself apart. He enters a period of darkness. He's alone. Um, that's a pattern, every hero. Odysseus is removed from his family, from his companions. Dante goes into exile. Um, Thomas More, we're going to, I mean, when we go back to the um, Protestant Reformation, same thing. Um, it's, only, it's only when he, Achilles withdraws from the war um, and has to deal with the fact that he's isolated himself from other people. He no longer does what other people do. Everybody else is still going along in the war, killing each other for booty, acquiring, justifying what they're doing because other people are doing things wrong, they're answering them. That cycle doesn't end. He withdraws from the war, and he loses everything. Um, Agamemnon, remember, comes to him and says, I will give you cities. I will give you tons of wealth. I will give you beautiful women. And he wasn't exaggerating. He's a king of all those things. He was going to give him all that to come back to the war because Agamemnon knew that if Achilles didn't, the Greeks were going to get wiped out. Achilles' response in the ninth book, it, to me it's key for this whole tradition, such things I need not. Such booty I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. So he turns away from this idea that booty's conferred by, or I mean, honor is conferred by wealth. The more wealth you have, the more prestigious you are, the more powerful you are. Is there anything more American than that? I, I've been saying right along, it, it's the most, it's probably the most profound critique of America that we have. And that's 2,000 years before America was born. Um, he withdraws. And remember, Patroclus comes to him and says, if you're not going, you big baby, you're not going back into the world, let me wear your armor. He goes in and he's killed. Hector kills him. Hector takes Achilles' armor and he's killed. The two men who try to put on Achilles' armor to be like him, die. So Homer's showing there's something special with this man. It's only when he withdrew, and, it, and he's the only man in the book, after he loses his friend, to step forward to say, my fault, my fault. I let everybody down. That's something a hero would never say. <coughs> None of them. And Agamemnon's <coughs> response, the gods made me do it. The tendency to blame others. To take a responsibility on for a failing, in one sense, makes you ashamed to a community that holds honor above everything else. But it frees you. It's at that point that he, he, he decides to go back in the war. He's, he's admitted his fault. What's he to be afraid of? When he enters the war, nobody can touch him. Nobody can touch him. It's, I compared it to a man talking in AA, going up and saying, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. You know, whatever your personal addictions are. When you admit them, you have nothing more to be afraid of. Your vanity in front of other people, you confess that you're, you've got an addiction. What's there to be afraid of? You can't be humiliated by people anymore. They know your sins. So once those fears are gone, he has nothing to be afraid of. Nobody can touch him. I think that's one of the great insights that the, the, the one reason we call Homer the founder, one of the founders of Western civilization, you know that I've argued that the Iliad and the Odyssey belong with Genesis, that those are all founding works. So this idea 
that it's only when you lose everything that you take away the power that it has over you, that you've given it because you want it so much. Right? If you wanted all this stuff, I mean, lots of people, when they, we know today, when lots of people, businessmen, CEOs, they, you know, they lose everything, they commit suicide. I mean, what are they going to do without it? They define their lives that way. So we see right here at the beginning that it's only when a man loses everything that he learns to see the world in a different way from the way other men see it. And something happens to change the way we value things. That's one of the things Homer gave us. <coughs> so, um, Abraham did the same thing. Beginning of the biblical tradition. He was asked to give up his home, ours, I think, I can't remember, it's been so long, but he has to leave his home, has to go on a voyage, he isolates himself from his people, he enters into a darkness, it changes his relationship with God, his faith in God becomes everything in him to such a point that God, Yahweh goes to him and says, sacrifice your son, and he's willing to do it. So there are all these examples of these men who, are, who lose everything. And because they do, it teaches them to see the world in a different light. Okay? The claim that I'm making here is that Dante did the same thing. We know that he writes the poem eight years after his exile. And we know that he set the poem before his exile. Because you remember when he goes in, about 1302, he keeps getting these hints that something's going to happen. Well, he knows it's because it's already happened. He's exiled, I think, in 1302. He starts writing the Commedia in 1308, I remember. Um, but nevertheless, he's in exile when he writes it. So that's a man who's lost everything. He's isolated. He enters into that darkness, that Achillean darkness. Odysseus had to do the same thing at sea, because remember, the sea's the irrational. It's not his home. He's lost his home. <clears throat> so every one of these epic heroes enters a darkness. He becomes isolated. He can't take his bearings from the way in which people live their lives, what they value. He learns to see things differently. Um, Dante did that. He lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his honor. Um, he was threatened with death if he ever returned to Florence. He, we know from the Commedia that he had to spend time with families that he could barely tolerate. And we know that he had some dear friends who helped him, that he stayed with for some time. Um, and I'm sure he was infinitely grateful for them. But he lost everything. He lost his life. His family, wealth, security. And it seems to me, there's not, a, at least in my mind, there's not a question that because that happened, it taught him to see the way in which we live in illusions because we put so much faith in worldly things. It's exactly what Father was talking about when he said that in the, in the Eucharistic real presence readings in John, you know, the, that, um, what's it called, the sixth chapter, not theology, but the treatise that's the... Bread of Life Discourse. The discourse, yeah, the Bread of Life Discourse. <coughs> that when Christ said, unless you eat of my body or blood, you will have no life in me. And you know that there was a prescription of, of taking blood in the Jewish tradition. So a lot of the disciples left. Father's comment this morning was, think how hard that was. Because if there was any inclination to, to be drawn to the world and its material possessions and what it would give you, 
you'd have to give them up because you're being asked to step outside that world in an act of faith so that everything you do from that point forward is going to be faith-based instead of community or wealth-based. Or So a lot of the disciples left. Um, the people who stayed remained in a very, entered a very different world where faith would be principled in whatever they were going, going on to do after that point. Um, so my suggestion here is that um, Dante was put in that situation, that it, it taught him to, to, to look at things more critically. And remember, these are the things, because <laughs> these were the things that defined his life. He was a soldier. He went to war with all the battles between the Gelfs and the Ghibellines. Dante fought. It was like St. Saint, Saint Francis was in the war. He knew that world. He was a part of it. It defined him. He wanted political office. He wrote, he wrote a book on um, world government. It defined his life. But once he lost everything, this is what it produces. So he, he, he's been in a position where he knows what it means to lose everything, and um, it, it, gives, it gives him a mind that can help him look at things the way other men who are still caught with their possessions cannot. And I think that's one of the reasons it's, it, it has the depth that it does. And that's one of the values for us, that it makes us, makes us look at our world and our relationship to it and the hold we allow it to have over us because we want things so much. I don't think we can see ourselves very clearly when we do that. It's hard to give up things, you know, um, but I think that's one of the prophetic elements of the work, okay? Um, <coughs> Um, the different modes I've gone over before, but let me say it just one last time because we're going to move on today. Remember, we've seen very clearly that um, there are three different modes of thinking and three different modes of being. Um, the, the mode of being in hell is ironic. People don't even see that they don't know. This goes straight to my point about the prophetic quality of Dante. These people don't know. They're held by what they wanted. Right? They are, they're there because they wanted those things more than anything else. So the mode of knowing in hell is irony. They don't even know that they don't know. <coughs> the mode of knowing or being in purgatory is um, wonder and mercy. They know that they're in sin, but they want to get out of it. So they've given their lives to penance. They're doing everything they can to discipline themselves to make them better to learn to let go of things. And we've talked about this, that the importance of memory, that the people in purgatory are attempting to recover something they knew they lost. That's one of the major themes of the purgatorio. They want to recover their union with God because they know until they, don't, until they do, they will have a sense of emptiness, no matter how much possession, how much wealth or possession they have, until they get back to God, they won't, they won't be complete. <clears throat> so the mode of knowing in purgatory is wonder. They want justice, um, but they're asking for mercy, a help from God to help them recover what they've lost. The mode of knowing in the purgatorio is um, forgiveness, joy, and gratitude. Paradiso. Sorry, paradiso. The mode of knowing in the paradiso is 
The debt's forgiven. This is so crucial to see. Purgatory paid that debt. That's, that, de that debt has to be paid. They're not going to get to heaven. Nobody's going to get to heaven who doesn't pay that debt. A law has to be answered. That was, that's what Christ did. Every one of those souls has to answer an injustice. They're learning to answer sins. Something unlawful in their character, not according to the law. But they're doing it with the help of a mercy. I've been trying to hammer this because I just think in our, in our Calvinistic world, we separate law and mercy. We make mercy everything, and I've, I've suggested over and over again. I think the outcome of that is enabling. It just produces enabling. If you keep letting something go, it's, it gets easier for somebody to keep doing it. Um, so the great struggle of the Purgatorio is to bring law and mercy together to answer faults, but in mercy. In the Paradiso, the debt's paid. It's gone. They enter paradise forgiven. <clears throat> they're grateful, they're glad, they're happy to be there. Forgetting something here, Ken. One of the things that I think is amazing about the Paradiso, you know, I've said this a number of times now, that Dante's the only poet that I know of who gives us this, an extended treatment of joy. There's no conflicts in heaven. Stories are always based on conflicts between good and bad. All stories are. The extraordinary thing he did is, is show that he, he showed us a condition that's believable that involves no conflicts. It, it's a time of just learning and joy. Um, remember Cuniza's line, I myself forgive myself. There's no arrogance in that. There's no presumption. The souls who are there are forgiven. They're, they are all with God, each according to their merits, um, each according to what they did and the graces given to them. So, um, <clears throat> the last thing that we did that to me is the, one of the most remarkable things that I think about the Paradiso is, um, remember I put the question to you a couple of weeks ago, why? Why is it that um, when Dante's ready to leave the earthly paradise that he isn't greeted by Christ? He's, he's about to enter his kingdom. He's leaving purgatory. Why doesn't Christ greet him and take him up? Why Beatrice? And my suggestion to that is, like a man coming out of the dark, leaving the world, he's beginning to enter a world more steeped in faith. Reason doesn't disappear. Beatrice is going to be using her reason at every step to explain things. So reason is still alive, but it's a reason rooted in the supernatural virtues in faith, hope, and charity, mostly love. So what she's going to show him are things that um, Virgil never could have. Because he, he, Virgil didn't come directly from God. Beatrice did. So her eyes are constantly on God. She's seen through him. So she can bring supernatural truths to Dante that Virgil could never have done. Um, and I think the reason Christ doesn't come, um, that she, she's a Christ bearer and she has to take him to Dante, is that she has to make it clear to him that this person who is the end of his life, this Christ, this God, this Trinitarian God, is behind everything in creation. 
So everything she does in the Paradiso is going to make clear the presence of the Logos, the Word, it's epos, this, the Logos. So this was a stunning revelation to me this time around because I don't think I'd ever seen it with this kind of clarity. Um, the person that Dante is going to see at the end is not going to be Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. It's not just going to be this. It's going to be the Logos. This is the Word. This is the, this is the one who created everything who's present in it. What we're discovering as we go through the Paradiso is there he is, there he is, there he is, there he is. He's present in his creation everywhere. And it's most apparent in, in the people that he will meet because as we move up the Paradiso, Dante begins to have glimpses of Christ. We'll go through this in a minute. He has glimpses of him in the level of Mars on a cross. Remember where all the martyrs were killed? He has glimpses of him... Um, in the fixed stars, I think it was, and, and then Christ rises in a light, and Mary follows him, and he's, he's almost blinded, it's, it's so full of light. The poem ends with, with um, Bernard making a prayer for Dante that he can finally see God, because the end of our journey is the beatific vision to see God. Um, Bernard prayers, prays, he does see him, and then at the last moment, Dante makes a special prayer himself because he wants to see the mystery of the Incarnation. Father, Spirit, Son, who's now Christ returned. Because this is what's amazing. The source of everything for us is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the Son, and this is Paul, emptied himself. How do you empty Godhead? Emptied himself to take on the nature of a man and became Christ. When Christ died and was raised, and he returned to the Father and the Spirit, he returned in his body. He didn't leave it behind. He took on the nature of a body and returned. So when Christ takes up his place next to the Father and Spirit, it's, it's no longer just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Father. Remember, all three persons indwelled. I, this is so. Remember we went through that period where I said, the Father is not greater or less than the other two that they indwell, they're, they're one God, so they share that nature. If you've got a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit who indwell, one with each other, that's their nature because they're one in being, or they wouldn't be God, and the middle one empties himself to take on our human nature, is he allow, God, God allows himself to be defeated, crucified, is raised again, returns. So at the very end, when Dante's looking at him, he sees the Trinity, we, we get that in language, and we know that he wants to look at this mystery of the Incarnation because he still can't fit his thinking with what he wants to see, that somehow the second person, of the, the Son, is now Christ returned in a body. And we'll see that at the end. So um, Dante's wish is fulfilled and then instantly we're taken back to the sun and the stars and you know we're returned to the natural order and so at the very end what what Dante sees for an instant he, he can find no language to describe it is this great mystery at the center of our faith this is the sun all God emptied himself took on our human nature took on our human nature and allowed it to be defeated allowed it to be crucified to answer our sin returned and there he is and I'm going to make claim at the end of the class that to me is one of the most astonishing things I think I've ever seen. I hope I can do it justice here at the end. Um, 
But it just just to repeat the point now that I'm, I've already made. Um, the, the, Christ doesn't greet him, I think, because there's, I think this is from John. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's from John's Gospel. We won't see Christ till we're like him. How can Dante meet Christ when he leaves the earthly paradise when he almost doesn't have a clue of the amplitude of this, this God-man? So I think what's going on with this, this final stage of the journey is Beatrice is showing the logos, the intelligibility, the, the reasonableness and the purple, purposefulness of everything in creation. Who's behind it? It's not just this Lord and Savior. It is the logos, the word, the word. It's Christ. And it's the, and it's the final end of the whole. That it, remember, this is the man who set out at the beginning who wanted to climb that mountain. And he wanted to do it alone and couldn't. But he wanted to go back to God. Having gone through this whole journey, I hope it's clear, the rich implications of this whole work has got to show the extraordinary richness of the God who's behind it all. The Father and the Son, but most especially, or Father, the Father, Son, and Spirit, but most especially the Son, Christ. Um, because that's that's finally what he closes, and it's 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 the most extraordinary mystery at the heart of our faith. Just a, a point of clarification, because I until I heard you, not just this time but other time, talking that the, the human element of Christ went back to heaven, because you know when you say you know he died and was buried, ascended into heaven, you're not thinking that he's taking his earthly form, I guess you'd say form or firstly dimension. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was, so when you say they're indwelling now, there's an indwelling of the three, and part of that is the earthly. I mean, I guess that's a mystery. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Who can get their mind around it? Well, I can't. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. You, wait, you know, the other thing I just wanted, because I'm glad for the opening, David. Remember this word that I, I keep repeating. Remember when Dante, in the first canto, when he enters the heavens, he says, um, remember that word? Trans you want me to get to the page? You know the word. It's in the first canto of the Paradiso. Mm -hmm. He says he's transhuman. And we see it because he immediately goes into the sun and it's body entering body. He goes into the, or I mean moon, body into moon, and bodies don't occupy. So we're already in a world in which somehow the body has been transformed. He enters the sun. He's not burnt to a crisp. So we're, we're I, in my mind, it seems to me we're supposed to be associating this with what we learn from the transfiguration on the mount, where we see a glorified body. Remember, <clears throat> my argument has been from the middle of the Paradiso, when Dante's talking with Thomas and, and Solomon comes front and center, at the very center of the Paradiso, the, the most important figure is Solomon. And the question put to him is, how will our body tolerate this light? Can it? How, you know, this, the beauty of radiance. And Solomon makes clear that once the resurrection takes place, everything will glow more fiercely because we will be more perfect in our nature because as humans we were created with bodies. They're not to be taken away. The, so Dante uses this word transhumanize. We've used the church, remember, 
theosis. Theosis. I think that's the right spelling. The gradual transformation of man into the divine. Um, the church fathers kept saying, how do they put it? Christ took on our nature so that we could take on his. So that when we return to heaven, uh, that's why the, the, the fundamentalist mind bothers me. To the degree that the fundament, both Christian and um, Islamic, to the, to the extent that the fundamentalist mind denies the logos in creation, they're denying Godhead in some ways. Christ took on a body, God took on a body so that we could become like God, so we could take on his nature. So that when we return to paradise now, because of what Christ did, we don't return, there will be a glorified body, there will be this transformation, there, in some sense we take on the aspect of Godhead. We will, be son, we will become the sons of God. Because we sh adopted Paul's, we share that nature with him because he took our nature on himself. So Dante's the only poet who's ever done justice to any of this stuff. The only one. Um, and how many people see it? You know, I just don't, I don't think it gets the attention, certainly not, not by modern writers. So we've got all these different modes, um, and all of them are moving us towards this perfect state of joy, state of forgiveness, a state of gratitude, one with God. And remember, just to pick up your word again, Dave, remember that indwelling becomes a part of everything that happens. Um, Dante, remember I talked about those reflexive verbs that as Dante meets these people, they're, they're in-hymning themselves in him, in-othering, that, that, that there's an indwelling quality. The, the amazing thing about it is, if you, in, in Hinduism, individuality is looked as, as the source of sin. In Christianity, our individuality is always protected, because each one of us was made individually in the image of God. So what Dante does is, is protect our separateness and individuality. We never lose it while we're capable of indwelling with another. Um, <clears throat> because it's our individual um, selves that makes us who we are. The selfhood, the free will that each one of us has. You know, that's, that's the image of God. Um, and, I, I think I said this, I, I will probably see it in a minute. The other, the other way that this theme is showed by Dante is there's a point at which um, Dante will even say, as he moved up after he meets um, his grandfather, and he enters, I think it's, it's the, the level of Saturn and then the fixed stars, he begins to see resemblances of Christ everywhere. He has the image of Veronica's cloth that held the image of Christ, that that image is there. He looks at Mary and sees an image of Christ. And it's at that point that I think we're meant to see how could they not Christ is the maker of everybody. We will be like him. Each one of us will be completely different. And yet there will be some way in which every one of us resembles him. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. I, I, pardon me, I wish I had that. Um, do you have the Jared Manny Hopkins poem, The, wind, the um, Dragonfly? I don't think so. Yeah. Do you remember the dra Hopkins Dragonfly? Or fire, yeah, dragonflies catch flame. Kingfishers. Kingfishers catch flame, dragonflies, and, they, and the bell 
rings, the tongue rings out, and the stones go down to the well. Do you remember? And he says, every one of them, each one is distinct, but everyone has Christ indwelling in them because there's nothing in creation that doesn't carry him. And that's especially true of human beings because we're made, in, we're made more in the image of God. We've got an intellect and we're capable of love. So, Okay, <clears throat> let me stop. I want to get to the readings. Any, any questions about what we're doing? <coughs> or what, rather, what Dante's doing? <coughs> I'd like to do some real and try to stay in the book through the rest of the class, but um, three themes, if you can call them that, three parts of the action that, are, that represents the completion of our journey uh, of the Paradiso. Um, the end of the journey, we're, we're finally seeing what it is Dante was setting out for when he first started climbing the mountain and could have never seen then. There's just no way he could have understood the full implications of what that meant when he wanted to go up that mountain. The whole poem is open to, to us. We, we see, <coughs> we see <coughs> the result of turning from God in hell. We see exactly what the effects of that are, so we, we know that fully in a way that we didn't when he first tried to climb the mountain. We know purgatory, the, <coughs> mercy, the mercy of God, the, how important the discipline of penance is for us, that we discipline ourselves to, to try to grow in virtues, that that's our work here, a major part of our work here, to try to become virtuous, to be good people, not just be smart, not just be athletic, to be good people, um, to be virtuous. And we see the end of it in the Paradiso. Um, I want to throw out this theme that in one sense it seems to me the, the poem is a celebration of God more than anything, certainly uh, of Christ. But it seems to me there, there are two sub-things to that. One of them is I think we're meant to look at the Divine Comedy as a pean to Beatrice, a song to her. Because um, remember, she's the one who went to get Virgil and she's the one who picks Virgil up and, and virtually completes the journey. She does it. She'll, she'll turn the last stage over to Bernard, but um, she, I, I just don't think we can say enough about Beatrice. She's an extraordinary woman. Um, she's an image of God. One of the parishioners um, still troubles about her because she's not a visible saint or some great person, and it seems to me that's, that's directly to Dante's purpose. He, he uses, this will line up with Milton really well. <coughs> she's an ordinary girl on the street. <coughs> she's just another woman in Florence. But she wasn't just another woman. She's a common, ordinary human being, but she also imaged the Trinity. And her effect on Dante from the first time he saw her was lasting. And so he has that line, ladies who have the intelligence of love that clearly marked her off from other women. And, and Dante's no slouch. He, he has that phrase in one of the condemnations of Florence where he talks about all the other women in Florence who have their tits hanging out. And I mean, you know, he's very blunt about it. That is, they're disgustingly immoral. You know, they're showing off their bodies. They're, they're, they're playing on their sex, the beauty of it and the power that they have. That's not so for this other group of women. Ladies who have the intelligence of love. For him to use that phrase is so remarkable. 
He's making it clear that um, the intelligence that people use that's rooted in love is very different from the intelligence that's not. That we can use our minds, you, we all know this, we can use our minds to blame, to justify, it's anything but loving. He's describing a quality to love that comes from virtue. So Beatrice is <coughs> fundamental. She's, she's, she's at the heart of this from beginning to end. It was, her, it was his sight of something in her divine that began to change his life. <clears throat> I think some of us have those experiences in marriage that we have glimpses of something in our spouses that we know it's there even if we you know, tend to bury it a lot. But um, each of us is asked to be a God-bearer, a Christ-bearer, to bring Christ to the world. Beatrice did that for Dante. And finally, and this may seem really radical, I'm going to hold it to the last point to see what you think. It seems to me that the Divine Comedy is a paean, a, a tribute, a song of praise to our human nature. It goes to just what you're saying. Um, I should probably hold on it, but let me, let me give part of this away. I think we live in a world that degrades the human body horribly. The Protestant world looks down on it, it hates it. Calvin hated the body, they thought the body was corrupt. The, the Calvinistic vestiges are with us all the time. We're in, we're in a Protestant America. We tend to desecrate the body. I mean, we do awful things to it. You know, we look down on it, we take it, we take it for granted, we don't discipline it. According to our Catholic tradition, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is supposed to be holy. We don't carry that attitude. We take it so badly for granted, we indulge it badly. Um, it's our body that distinguishes from angels. It's our glory. It's what makes us human. How many people, oh wait, combine the Calvinistic view with the scientific view. For most science, Freud and most scientists, the body's a collection of atoms. There's nothing glory, God imaging about it at all. It's our human body. Um, it's our glory. I'm saying now, I'm not exaggerating right now, I'm saying it because I believe it. It's our glory. It's, it's the one thing that distinguishes from angels. <clears throat> and if that wasn't clear before, it, we cannot miss it once Christ enters it. God took on our body to answer our sins and took it back with him. So the human body is something we so terribly take for granted today in our culture, so terribly abused. I think one of the great glories of the Commedia is that it, it affirms, it glorifies the body, and we'll see that at the end when Dante looks at the Trinity. So let's, let's go to our readings. There's the poem if you wanted it. Right. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> Here, I'm glad. Wow. To, hold on, just let me read this, because this is Hopkins. We've read it before. I've done it with the wind hovering. But <clears throat> listen to the lines, and listen for the way in which Christ, he sees Christ present everywhere. As kingfishers catch fire, you know, they're flying over a stream or something, and the sun, a piece of, a glint of sunlight flashes off them. Kingfishers catch fire, drag, or the kingfishers coming out from the stream. Dragonflies draw flame from the sun. Okay. As tumbled over rim, as tumbled over rim in roundy wells, you can hear the rocks going down the well. As tumbled over rim in roundy well, that is the rocks are speaking as they go down. 
His tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring like each tucked string tells. Each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. You know the lip of the bell is called the tongue. So that when you ring the bell, <laughs> Hopkins is playing on it. He's saying that each thing in nature, each thing is a self. It's not, it doesn't have selfhood the way we do. It can't say I, but each thing is a self. We tend to objectify it and see a fish, a bell. Hopkins is saying, no, but each one of those things it is a self. It speaks. So the rock's tumbling down the rail. The, the bell speaking, he actually plays on the word tongue because it has a tongue. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. What's the being that dwells in each one of them? It's God, its maker. Cells. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. Cells. Goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. One of the, St. Thomas, one of the signs of God's perfection is this great variety of things that he created. Not just the same thing, this abundant variety, <coughs> and every one of those things speaks his name. He created them. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces. The just man keeps trying to be Christ. <coughs> acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is Christ because each one of us is trying to be like Christ for Christ plays in 10,000 places lovely in limbs and in eyes not his to the Father through the features of <coughs> men's faces we hope one day that we will show Christ in our own faces glad you found that thanks is that clear? the logos is everywhere that's what Dante's showing us. Um, Hopkins is doing it in a lyric, but Dante's doing it in an epic. It's just, Christ is everywhere. It's important that Dante see that if he's to fully appreciate what he sees at the end. Um, okay, turn to 498. I'm going to do a quick review of some things. Any questions about this before we go ahead? Because we're going to do some readings. You, any comments or what do you guys think about all of this? Paradiso is amazing, isn't it? No? No, it is. David, did you? Well, I, I think being a cradle Catholic, that it's like I got the Reader's Digest version of a lot of this, and it's not enough. Yeah. And if they had done more, either with and or with the Bible and or with masses and or with classes, I think people would feel better about bodies, about human being body, than they do today. And we spend a lot of time in the secular world admiring the beautiful looks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and the, and I'm not trying to denigrate the church, but they just, they, like I said, it's just, we've had the Reader's Digest version all these years. Yeah. Yeah, it's so much our world, yeah. too. God, it's, it's just a very, very different world. But, you know, in, in some ways, St. Paul's readings can lead you astray if you're not careful. 
explain that because I well, agree with cool. because I you know in, in a lot of in a lot of his verse there's a you know avoid the flesh, flesh. you know oh, focus on the spirit yep. and I wonder to some extent if that you know maybe not being presented in the right way by theologians or yep. you know whatever yep. has you know has been part of that I agree. being led astray. I agree. I agree. And I think to add to it, I couldn't agree more, um, Fred. And to add to it, I just think when the Reformation thinkers get a hold of it and they look at nature as corrupt, right. then it's easier to look at everything natural as degraded and corrupt. And I, that, you know, when you did the Faulkner book and that that word abomination, kind of just that word almost terrifies me. You can see people easily using it. That's why maybe we should do the scarlet letter, but you know, that there this awful Finally. <laughs> this awful attitude towards the body and sex. You know, I, John Paul's book, Theology of the Body, to me was one of the most extraordinary acts in the last two centuries because it 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 it, it did everything it could to recover the, the right place of sex in marriage when there's so little going on around us to give it its place. Um, and, and precisely for that, because Paul, who's a great theologian, you know, um, and, and if you read it through a, a Protestant lens where you, the flesh is not good and the, all things nature are corrupted, um, you're even more likely to carry that whether you think about it or not. Um, well, I, think, I think it just wasn't, you, you, it's, it's like everything else, I guess. You kind of have to understand why, context. in a sense, the, the, the context of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because at that point, it, there was a almost a sense of desperation. I think that you know we're so far tilted in one direction, and mm -hmm. and Christ may be coming next week or you know soon. There's a real focus to to get that pendulum back to some kind of balance. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's ever mm -hmm. you know. I mean, it's it's rarely. Let me put it that way. Rarely presented in that that kind of a context. Yep. So you kind of walk away with a different perspective. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. I love Paul, but I look at his, you know, when I look at the word flesh, and you get the flesh, the devil, or what, <clears throat> you have to see that what he's really talking about is the way we allow ourselves to become too worldly, yeah. too attracted. But, but people take that literally as if there's something wrong with the flesh, inherently wrong, and I couldn't agree that the damage of that is awful. But I really think he's saying, be careful of your worldliness, that you can get so attached to the world against the spirit, that this internal life that... But there's, I mean, you, if you looked at Christ, you could never come away with a dark conclusion because he entered the body. <clears throat> and it's called the temple of the, you know, the body's the temple of the spirit. Um, I mean, there's so much I think we do to desecrate it, you know, to just not treat it well, but... Um, I don't think that's Paul's fault. Um, and, and it's interesting. There's that question of reading again, you know, that we've been talking about forever, that we don't, we don't read very, we think we read really well. And I think so much more goes on in reading than we often allow. 498. <clears throat> Remember, this is where we picked up and um, the eagle was answering Dante's question about the justice of some people not being baptized, remember? 
and we saw these pagans in the eye of the eagle. You all remember? Riffius and Trajans were two of them. And the eagle explains to Dante that people should stop trying to be so judgmental, that there's lots of things that they don't understand about God. The one thing we know about God is he, he will never be unjust. So if we've got questions about baptized or we should rest secure that God's not going to do anything bad. The danger is for us to be condemning as if we could speak for God. Um, um, on page 505, oh, earthbound creatures. This is where he's talking about the, um, 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 die, the people who die unbaptized. It's interesting, the, the bells that people use. That's the second of fire alarm today. We, we maybe better get out of here. He dies unbaptized, dies without the faith. What is this justice that condemns his soul? It's interesting to say that because it, um, who condemns him? I mean, maybe the church wrongly, individuals wrongly, but Dante's response is, O earthbound creatures, O thick-headed men, the primal will, which of itself is good, never moves from itself the good supreme. God will never do anything but good. He understands these things better than we do. Um, <clears throat> that's why there are lots of Catholics in hell, because being a Catholic doesn't guarantee a place there. And that's why there are so many people who are not Catholic who are in heaven. Um, on, on 511... Um, he's given an explanation of what happened with um, Trajan and Riffius. Remember, Riffius was that Trojan soldier who died. And I, I, I brought the book, didn't I? Didn't I do this in this class? I took the Aeneid and went through the beginning where the, where the Trojans took on Greek armor to, to disguise themselves. But then they were recognized and attacked and... and <coughs> and almost all of them killed. One of them was a man named Riffius, and Virgil describes it as most just of men, but the gods thought otherwise. So he's killed, didn't I? I did that, didn't I? Wow. No. i got to get these classes mixed up. Here, turn to page, I'm sorry, I don't have Virgil, 511. Two of the figures in the eagle's eye are major pagans. Um, Trajan was one. The traditional story in the early church was that, um, I think it was um, um, Bishop Gregory, I'm not, I'm not sure, loved Trajan because he was such a good emperor that he prayed and had him return to life so he could be baptized and then sent to the other world. Um, that's the tradition. Riffius, it's, it's said here, was such a righteous man that in a sense he loved God so much more than anything else that he was baptized long before um, his death came. It says here in 511, who in your erring world would have believed that Rivius of Troy was here, the fifth in this half circle made of holy lights. Now he knows much more about God's grace than anyone on earth and sees more deeply through even his eye cannot probe God's <coughs> depths. Um, in, the, in Virgil's line, sorry, I've read it to the other class. I thought I'd done it here, but in, in the Aeneid, Aeneas is describing the story of the, of the destruction of Troy. 
when the Greeks crash, the, when they get in through the horse and then the gates are open and they come out and they start destroying the city, there's a moment when they get smart and put on Greek armor to disguise themselves, but then they're discovered and when they are, they're attacked and almost killed to a person. One of the men killed was this very righteous man, Riphius. So he's in, he's a pagan. This is 2,000 years before, 1,200 years before Christ. And um, Virgil's description of him is Riphius, the most just of Trojans, but the gods thought otherwise. And so I, it seems to me one of the reasons, this is Dante playing with Virgil. One of the reasons Dante has him here is so that he can say, but the God thought otherwise. Is that clear? It's just a beautiful irony, but you have to read the tradition to see it, otherwise you'll miss it. It's his way of showing, no matter how good the gods were in that ancient world, they're nothing compared to the God that we have, because his mercy is infinite. <clears throat> so, so here's Riphius in heaven, the eye of the needle, illustrating God's justice, the great mercy behind it. <clears throat> Turn to 515. Um, they've ascended to Saturn. Remember, that's the highest of the planets. Um, from here, they're going to go to the uh, fixed stars and then the prima mobile. But here, when they enter Saturn, an interesting thing happens. Um, she was not smiling, but were I to smile, she said to me, what Samili became, you would become burned to a heap of ashes. That is, they're getting so close to God now that her effulgence, the brightness of the light shining through her, would be so great that Dante couldn't bear it. So she's not smiling um, to, to protect him. My beauty, as you've already seen, becomes more radiant with every step of the eternal place. So we know, remember, Picarda came to Dante at the moon, and souls came to each succeeding level to prepare him gradually for what he's going to see. Not that they're removed from God, they're all with God. They're all perfectly happy, but they're showing degrees of blessedness according to merit and grace. Um, and here they've entered Saturn and we're reminded that the closer you get to God, the greater the light. Dante still has to become adjusted to things. And if it were not tempered, such effulgence would strike your sight the way a bolt of lightning shatters the leafy branches of a tree. We have ascended to the seventh light. Um, Bottom of 516, a light appears to Dante. This is um, Peter Damien. And he speaks to Dante, and um, Beatrice says, Satisfy your deep desire. He wants to know something. I know I'm not worthy in myself to have an answer from you, I began, but for the sake of her who gives me leave to speak, O blessed life hidden within your happiness, I pray you let me know what has it made you come so close to me. And tell me why heaven's sweet symphony is silent here in this sphere, while below and all the rest, its pious strains resound. Remember, every heaven has had its own sound, its own music. Because remember, the, the, the 
image of the planetary system from Plato, I think some uh, pre-Platonic sources and certainly after um, those who follow, was that um, each of the physical planets revolved around the Earth, this is the Ptolemaic system, each planet had, was governed by an order of angels. The closer you got to God, the higher the order of angels. The seraphs were the highest and the cherubims next. Each one had its own sound. So altogether, the, the music that was produced by the harmony of those different sounds was called the music of the spheres. That was Pat Shakespeare. Those of you who did Midsummer Night's or Merchant of Venice remember that it was, it was played there. We can't hear that music because it's, um, it's, it belongs to a metaphysical order. Only one character in all of literature that I'm aware of, I think there are more, but the, the one I'm certain of, is in a Shakespeare play called Pericles. He searches for his wife and daughter. He thinks he's lost them. It's a long, arduous journey for him. Um, he discovers them then, but there's an, at the end of his journey, when after a, a, a long life of suffering, of hardships and solitude, he, he is reunited with those he, he loves, and he's described as going to rest, and he hears the music of the spheres. Just rare. Mystics long for that, to put away the world in order to become united with God, to experience that harmony, the beauty of that music. So here in Saturn, he says, tell me why the heaven's sweet symphony is silent here in the sphere while below in all the rest its pious strains resound. Your hearing is but mortal like your sight, he said. There is no singing here, just as there's no smile in Beatrice's face, only to welcome you. What's going to happen right now is that we're entering into this contemptus mundi, contempt of the world, that great Christian theme that Christ says, unless you hate the world, contemptus mundi, contempt for the world. And unless we gradually detach ourselves from the world, we won't hear that harmony. And right now, at the leaven of the Saturn, We've entered a world of, of um, silence. I, I think symbolically that represents that moment, that stage that the mystic goes to when he passes from this world, the, the, the way of negation, where you have to get everything out of your mind before you take the next step, because that next step takes you to God. Um, <clears throat> Um, what happens in the next, on page 524, Dante enters the constellation of Gemini. This was the constellation of his birth, so we're going back to origins again. And it's interesting, that, remember I've said this for a couple of weeks now, he's going back to origins. Um, the, the reformers that he meets, Benedict and Damien, um, have that same time sequence so that everything, he's going from his grandfather to Adam, he's going from a reformer that lived late in the Middle Ages to, to one that lived in the fourth, fifth century, he's going back to beginnings everywhere. Um, he's entering Gemini, um, he's going to the place of his birth, and he will meet Adam. I don't want to go through the, um, <coughs> the examinations in Faith, Hope, and Charity. Um, at, the, at the end of his journey here, um, Remember, at the, at, the, at the very end, he will, he will undergo a journey in faith with Peter and um, um, hope with John, or no, I mean, sorry, James, and then love with John. 
So he's going to undergo a catechetical exam. And we get the definitions, the church's classical definitions of faith, hope, and charity. In the last one with John, he looks so intently at John uh, because there was tradition that John was the only disciple to leave this world in the body. So he's looking really hard at John to see if he can't learn something from that. And he's looking so hard that he goes blind for a moment, which I think is, is symbolically, again, a reminder of something more that we've talked about this a number of times, that the divine love is blind in the sense that it's very different from the love of the world. That once you enter the action of caritas, the action of a supernatural love, you've entered another world that the world, our world doesn't know because there's always something self-centered, self-serving in our love here on, on earth. The best way I can put it is the way I've put it before. Faith isn't faith unless we have no reason to have faith anymore. It's a supernatural virtue. Hope is not hope until we have no reason for hoping. Love is not love um, unless we have no, longer, no reason for loving. If somebody does something that's unlovable, the answer to that should be to love them more. And I'm saying that with this qualification. Remember that law and love are not separated in the Christian tradition. They're, they're fulfilled in Christ. So love doesn't mean going against the law, but to love when there's no reason means to, to, to bring all of this together in a love that doesn't make sense in the worldly terms. It's just a, so I, I, I don't think that when Dante looks at John and is blinded, that that's just an arbitrary act. Dante's, it's the way Dante has of signaling it, it can't be any other way because love by its, by its very nature transcends the world as we know it, of, our, of ourselves. Um, <clears throat> so Peter Damien, who was born in the 11th century, appears, and then shortly afterwards in, on um, chapter 22 here, Benedict appears. Benedict was the founder of monasticism. He, he lived in the 5th century. So we're getting... We're going back to the origins of the church, its beginnings. We're going back to the beginning of things for him, for Dante. Um, turn to 526. <coughs> they enter the heaven of the fixed stars. 527. Behold the host of Christ in triumph and see all the fruit harvested from the turning of these spheres. I saw her face aflame with so much light, her eyes so bright with holy happiness that I shall have to leave it undescribed. She's getting more and more beautiful the closer they get to God. How, how else can it be? As in the clearness of a full moon sky, trivia smiles among eternal nymphs who paint the depths of heaven everywhere. I saw above a myriad of lights one sun that lit them all, even as our sun illumines the stars of his domain. It's Christ. And through its living light, there poured the glow of its translucent substance, bright, so bright, that my poor eyes could not endure the light. O Beatrice, loving guide, sweet one, she answered, that which overcomes you now is strength against which nothing has defended. To look on Christ there is to look on something irresistible. You know, whatever addictions, whatever vices we have here will weaken in comparison to, because there will be no way to resist the beauty of it. Within it dwell the wisdom and the power that open 
that opened between heaven and earth a road mankind for ages longed for ardently. As fire, when it expands within a cloud, must soon explode because it has no space and through against, though against its nature crashed to earth, so my mind there amid so rich a feast began to swell until it broke its bounds, and what became of it, it does not know. Open your eyes, look straight into my face. Such things have you seen witness to that now. You have the power to endure my smile. Go on over, 529. The sound of that sweet flower's name, the one I pray to day and night, drew all my soul into the vision of the flame of flames. When both of my eyes revealed to me how rich the glorious was that living star that reigns in heaven as it had reigned on earth, down from heaven's height there came a flaming torch shaped in a ring as if it were a crown that spun around the glory of her light. The sweetest sounding notes enrapturing a man's soul. This is a stunning metaphor. The sweetest sounding notes enrapturing a man's soul here below would sound just like a clap of thunder crashing from a cloud compared to the melodious tones that poured from the sweet lyre <clears throat> crowning the lovely sapphire whose grace in sapphires, there's that in, um, reflexive verb, whose grace in sapphires the heaven's brightest sphere. Who are they talking about there? Is it clear? Mary? She, remember, Christ just ascended, and now Mary's following, and he's describing the beauty of her that's so extraordinary. But the sweetest sounding notes enrapturing a man's soul here below would sound just like a clap of thunder crashing from a cloud. Somebody explain that metaphor. Is it clear? Put it in your own words. You want to do it, Doug? Explain the metaphor? Yeah. That what's the what's the biblical quote about sounding gong that um, that the love of, of God and Christ is um, is so wonderful it's a poor word um, that anything that seemed wonderful here on earth would be like dirt or Cross or yeah, the most beautiful sounds here on earth would be like a thunderclap there in comparison because the beauty is so indescribable. Um, an angel appears to describe what's going on, and it's here that Dante will begin to see um, resemblances to Christ everywhere. Um, they enter the prima mobile. I just want to take a, a minute with it here. Remember. The, the prima mobile is, in some sense, has to be understood. They, they understood it literally, but I think it's important to see its metaphorical character. The prima mobile is the first mover. Um, you remember the argument from motion, or contingency, from Aristotle forward. No contingency explains itself. Even the black hole is a contingency. It's, it's not, it's, it's a myth. It doesn't, it's a chance events like everything else. Every chance event has to be explained by some other to, in order to understand it at all. So every motion, every contingency has a prior motion that takes that same, it's a contingency, it's a chance thing. You can't come to any full explanation until you come to something that in itself is not contingent or that doesn't move itself. That's the first mover. That's God. That is, there has to be something perfect before there can be all these imperfect things. So if you look at the whole universe, you know, in terms of its orbits, 
The last one is called the premium mobile. Premium. I spelled premium. The premium mobile, the first mover. It's translucent. It's a it's a translucent sphere. I think it's meant to be that image of the motion that God imparts to the world as a principle, because all the other worlds take their movement from the premium mobile. Its motion imparts motion to everything else in the universe. So it's a metaphor of that God setting in motion things. And Dante's image of it is, is, is a, of a tree like this. This is a tree whose roots are outside of time in God's mind. This is his creation. It's just it's another <coughs> metaphor for, for describing it. And it's here that Dante has this amazing experience. Um, remember, we've been talking about this since Eliot, but he, he, he looks back at the earth at the center. If, if he looks back at the earth in terms of its material properties, he looks back at the earth, and every, every sphere gets faster and faster and contains greater and greater goodness until it comes to the premium mobile in God. But at the center, it's not moving. Because the earth is, remember this is the Ptolemaic scheme, the earth is the center of the universe, and it's a place, the only place in the universe where death occurs. It's, it's everything from the sun down, this is called, this, or I'm sorry, everything from the moon down is called the sublunary world. It's the world of mutability. This is so important, it was very important for the Renaissance. The world of mutability, of change, okay? Because we know from the moon down, everything changes. It's a, it's a place of chance, circumstance, death. When you go into the heavens, the heavens were thought of as the place of the gods because they were immortal, beyond dying. They didn't die. People came and go, but the heavens were always there. That's why they identified the planets with the gods. Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Is that clear? It's really important to see that. Yeah? Is everybody clear? So Earth was a place of mutability and death. Okay? The heavens were immutable, unchanging, eternal. That's why they identified the planets with the gods. Um, so when Dante looks back from the Prima Mobile and sees the Earth in terms of its material properties, he sees this with the Earth at the center and moving. In the next instance, Beatrice is looking at God and Dante's looking at her, looking at the, at the center of the universe, and now the perspective has changed because it's looking at the spiritual dimensions of, of the universe. And what they see is God at the center moving so fast, it's a still point. And we went over that with Elliot again and again and again. He got that from Dante. Dante got it from a long platonic tradition going back ages. So when he looks, when he looks here, he sees a still, point a still point moving so fast it seems to be still. And then each, each order moving out is moving more and more slowly as it moves away from God. But if you remember Eliot, if you remember Eliot, the still point, we went over this, the stairs, the dancer, the vase, um, the music laugh, the note lasting, all those, all those metaphors of the still point because there cannot be anything in nature that doesn't imply a still point, a point of order, a point of purpose, nothing, it's everywhere. So 
it's the intersection of these two worlds that Dante experiences right now, the, both the physical and the spiritual, and the two different ways of looking at them. Um, I thought that prima mobile was at the highest level where Christ was. It is. But yet you said at the center, Christ was at the center. God. God. Right. I'm sorry, David. I'm, if you look at it from, a, from the prima mobile is always here outside of time. Okay. Oh. Um, with the planets coming, if you but if you look, if you look with spiritual eyes, it's the only way I know how to put it. You see that God, God is. I mean, we already know God is outside His time as well. But what you see in this is that He's, He's that still point. He, He, He's represented at every point in nature. He's involved directly with everybody. He's present. Because that still point, there's nothing in existence that can exist without that still point. Okay. It's the principle of purpose and order. Um, I want to get to the end here. Here it is. Um, the um, on five sixty six, we get to um, Dante enters the Imperium, so he passes from the Prima Mobile into the Imperium, the, the, the kingdom in which God rules directly. Um, on page five sixty five, the love that calms this heaven forever greets all those who enter with such salutation. So is the candle for its flame prepared. No sooner had these brief assuring words entered my ears than I was full aware. My senses were now raised beyond their powers. The power of a new sight lit up my eyes so that no light, however bright it were, would be too radiant for my eyes to bear. I saw the light that was a flowing stream blazing in splendid sparks between two banks painted by spring in miracles of color. Out of this stream, the sparks of living light were shooting up and settling on the flowers. They looked like ruby set in gold. So there's a stream of light passing between two banks that seem to contain flowers. But flecks of light are coming in and out to the two banks. As it clarifies, Dante's going to see that um, the light is an image of God's grace. And angels are moving in and out of it to the two banks which represent the, the blessed in heaven. <clears throat> Dante wants to see more. Beatrice says at the bottom of 555, <clears throat> but you must first drink of these waters here before such thirst as yours is satisfied. So did she speak, that sunlight of my eyes. And then she said, the stream, the Jews, you leap in and out of, the smiling blooms are all prefigurations of their truth. He can't see them as they are yet. He had, without dipping his face in this stream, which is an image of the grace flowing directly from God. These things are not imperfect in themselves. The defect, rather, lies with your sight, as yet not strong enough to reach such height. He's getting closer and closer. This has been a principle. He's got to get accustomed gradually, because the glories he's going to experience are so far beyond anything we could imagine. No sooner had the ease of my eyes drunk within these waters than the river turned from its straight course into a circumference. So now this stream opens up into a circle, and what we see are the divisions between, on one side, those who believed in Christ before he came, 
and those who believed in Christ after he came. And they're all set up in this beautiful rose. This is called the rose, the, the rose of the Imperium. Over on 567, so mere tier on tier within the light, more than a thousand were reflected there. I saw all of those who won return, and if the lowest tier alone can hold so great a brilliance, then how vast a space of this rose to its outer petals reach. <clears throat> and yet by such enormous breadth and height, my eyes were not confused. They took in all the number and quality of bliss. That's so important to hear. And yet by such enormous breadth and height, my eyes were not confused. They took in all the number and in quality of bliss. There was no blurring, no confusion, no matter how vast this was. It was all immediately clear. The next, um, the next three lines, the next tercet, to me is one of the most stunning of the Paradiso. There near, nor f there near and far, nor adds nor takes away from where God rules directly without agents, the laws of nature in no way apply. <clears throat> another, another translation has it. There, how's it go? Neither distance, what does it take? Neither nearness or distance adds or takes away for where God rules immediately, the, the laws of time and space don't apply. There neither nearness nor distance adds or takes away. If they were a million miles away, in relative, because our, our terms of measure, there's an incommensurability. There are two different forms of measurement, but we, we naturally tend to think in those terms. But if I can use that metaphorically, if they were a million miles away, the people a million miles away would be just as clear as if they were right in front of us. Neither nearness nor distance added or took away, because where God rules, remember, for God, there's no past or future. There's no distance in space like we know it. No nearness, no, so everything is immediately clear because we're, we're in the presence of God. <coughs> the laws of time and space, no, he, he, he doesn't know the past or the future. He knows, he sees. <coughs> Look at our city. See its vast expanse. You see our seats so filled, only a few remain for souls that heaven still desires. Okay, um, <clears throat> a couple of beautiful metaphors, we're getting to the end here, 570. O triune light which sparkles in one star upon their sight, fulfiller of full joy, look down upon us in our tempest here. If the barbarians coming from such parts as every day are spanned by Hellas, traveling the sky with their beloved sun, when they saw Rome, her mighty monuments, the days of the labyrinth built high, outsoared, all mortal art were so struck with amazement. Then I coming to heaven from our mortal earth, from man's time to divine eternity, from Florence to a people just insane. <laughs> Everything about the world is unjust and insane. With what amazement must I have been struck? You, know, you all seen the movie, um, The Gladiator? Remember when the barbarians are brought from the desert lands because they're going to fight in the Colosseum and they stand before the Colosseum in awe? I'm convinced that, I can't remember the guy who did that, he and his brother were those two filmmakers, but I'm convinced they had this as the source of that vision because those barbarians looked on the Colosseum in absolute awe. They, I mean, they had no idea that such things could be done. Dante's that way now. He's, he's looking at the Imperium. I mean, he, He's speechless. What can he? He's never seen anything like this. 
By now my eyes had quickened, taken in a general plan of all of paradise, but had not fixed themselves on any part. New kindled eagerness to know, I turned around to ask my lady. This is the Virgil moment again, but heightened. He turns to Beatrice. She's gone. I turned around to ask my lady things that to my mind were still not clear enough. What I expected was not what I saw. I thought to see Beatrice there, but saw an elder in the robes of heaven's saints. <clears throat> this is St. Bernard, who was one of the great um, devotional mystics to Mary. It's from this point, now Beatrice is going to leave Dante, this is interesting because it reverses the Virgil moment. He turns around for Virgil, he's gone. He's gone back to, um, remember, the limbo, the, um, the, the level of the uh, virtuous pagans. He sees Beatrice take her place in the, the rose. She looks back and beams in joy to see him. He's at that point where he wants to see God. She can't fulfill that. Bernard can. So I want to stop for a moment. Beatrice is this extraordinary figure. She's gone this far. Why, why does she not complete the journey with him? Why does she turn this over to St. Bernard at this point? It's like the Virgil moment, but a change takes place, right? Remember, he turned to Virgil when, when Beatrice approached and he was so, his knees were shaking. He turned for consolation. This is a very different moment. Um, he's amazed and wants to talk to her again because she's been his guide all along. He turns and she's gone. Bernardo's there instead. Any thoughts <coughs> why she doesn't complete the journey? She looks at him. He sees her in the rose there. So she's still very present. She's, she's full of joy. Seems to me there's a couple of things we can say here, but what, any, what do you guys, any thoughts? Francis, do you have something? No. I don't know why St. Bernard, of all people. Why do you put it that way? Well, I, mean, I guess I don't know St. Bernard well enough to, oh. to really... Yeah. To, to know why he would be the one to make He the loved final. Mary. He, he gave devotions to her. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there seems like there's so many others, you know. Like others who love Mary? Well, St. Peter, you oh, know, for yeah, example. I mean, yeah. you know, right. to, to make that, that right. last right. journey. Right. I was surprised by the selection. Yeah. He's, a, got, he's a mystic, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Go ahead. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe because he's a mystic, he got closer to God. Than, I mean, Beatrice obviously is close to God, but she's an ordinary woman. St. Bernard was a mystic. So you yeah. have to be able to em embrace that mystery to be able to make that final. I don't know. Yeah. It's, well, it's a good thought. Yeah. It's all better than anything I came up with. <laughs> <laughs> You're friends again. I'm so glad for that. <laughs> um, well, I, I, and we're not there yet, but if you get to 576 and that mm -hmm. whole mm -hmm. second page mm -hmm. discourse, I mean, there seems to be, to, to really convey that message, and I'm, I'm still struggling with it even now. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, there would have to be someone that, that sees the world in a very different way to be able to... To, to, to give that message to yeah. Dante, I think. Yeah. I, th I think that's 
I think that's it. And I also wonder if it's just, it's probably secondary to what you're saying because I really believe the mystical part is devotions to Mary <clears throat> were so exceptional <clears throat> that they need her prayers <clears throat> and he would be the one more appropriate. And it's another way of saying that is in light of that, that it has to be something beyond Beatrice because her concern for Dante was that he loved her. I think there's something selfless to, to a much greater degree. She loved him, she knew he loved her, that right now they're entering something that is more selfless in its character, that the mystic enters into when he turns from the world completely and goes to God. <clears throat> so, um, Page 573, I saw as my eyes still climbed from vale to mountaintop there at the highest point, a light outshining all that splendorous rim, and as our sky where we expect to see the ill-starred shaft of Phaeton's chariot burns brightest dimming all the light around. Imagine, I mean, this, this is Mary whose light is dimming the lights around her. So there on high that oriflame of peace lit up the center while on either side its glow was equally diminishing. And all around that center, wings outstretched, I saw more than a thousand festive angels, each one distinct in brilliance. And we didn't do this, but earlier there was this discussion about angelic nature and whether angels had memory. And, and Dante makes it clear that there are numbers of angels beyond count. Humans cannot count the numbers. There's so many. It's in the context of asking whether angels have memory, because people had different thoughts on this. Dante comes down on the side that they don't. I think Thomas said that they did. I'm not, I, I, it's been a long time since I've looked at it. I think Thomas said he, they did, but Dante says no. Because since they always look at God, they have nothing to forget. They just, they see, we, because we're in bodies, we, we use what the medievals would have called, rat, there are two powers of reason, ratio intellectus, ratio intellectus. Ratio is step by step. If this, then this, then this, then. Intellectus means seeing a thing immediately, grasping it, totally there. Angels see, we can, we can have intellectus moments, but the, the, the mode of angels is intellectus. They see, we reason, because we're in bodies. Um, <clears throat> so um, there are countless angels surrounding her always in all the descriptions. And all around that center, wings outstretched, I saw more than a thousand festive angels, each one distinct in brilliance and in art. And there, smiling upon their games and song, I saw a beauty that reflected bliss within the eyes of all the other saints. And even if I were as rich in words as in remembering, I would not dare to describe at least part of such beauty's bliss. She brought Christ to the world. There is no way to capture the beauty of Mary here. Um, <coughs> On 575, Dante's describing the, the arrangements of seating with the, those who believed in Christ before his coming and those who believed afterwards. They're all there. Um, 577, now look at that face which resembles Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made ready to look at Christ. <clears throat> Remember I said there are several scenes in which Dante prepares us for the moment the, the face of Christ in the veil of Veronica, the, you get more and more images of Christ leading to this moment where he says, 
Now look at that face which resembles Christ, Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made rich. Nobody will get to Christ that doesn't first go through her because she's the way. She brought us Christ. I saw such bliss rain down upon her face, bestowed on it by all those sacred minds created to fly through those holy heights, that of all things I witnessed to this point, nothing had held me more spellbound than this or shown a greater likeness unto God. And that love which had once before descended, now saying, Ave Maria, gratia plena, before her presence there with wings spread wide. It's just a great song surrounding her. <coughs> can, can I ask a question before you skip over? Yeah, go ahead. On, on page 576, starts halfway down the page, I guess mm -hmm. it's line 52, within the vastness of this great domain, mm -hmm. that whole section right there what are your what are your thoughts on that <laughs> you don't want to narrow that any do you well you've got something on your mind so well it, it, to me that's the whole the whole place where he where he what talks page about are you on again 576 yep sorry go ahead starts with line 52 within the vastness of this great domain mm -hmm. no particle of chance can find a place no more than sorrow thirst or hunger can for all that you see here has been ordained by the eternal law with such precision that ring and finger are a perfect fit are you going to predestination and order well again? no I, I'm, I'm i'm beyond the predestination but what 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 that whole section seems to to say is that okay we we all reflect God's grace in different ways and you know once we completely fulfill whatever that is that's the ring and finger or a perfect fit but then isn't there a kind of a a learning in there that basically says you know you we can look at people like Mary and St. Thomas and things like that as a directional guide but at some point we have to kind of recognize the fact that there is an ultimate end state for each of us that we can we can we can find and 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 nothing else and so if we you look said in state in well in intrinsic condition in, in, to the point where we ultimately achieve what god has uh, has in in in, in uh, made possible for each one of has, us has destined us to be, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. And so we kind of have to be careful that we that we recognize that, right? I mean, if we're looking at St. Thomas or Mary and say, well, I, I want to be like them, but the probability is we never will be. Right. So at some point we have to, we have to recognize that we're going to ultimately become something different and be... You made that point be, a couple of weeks ago. And be comfortable with yeah, that. Yeah, right, right, right. No, not. I mean, if I, I can put it more strong. I'm running out of. I'm running. No, out no, of no, no, no. You're right on. I think you're. <laughs> but I mean, be, be happy with that. <laughs> right. I guess, that's or, where or, I was going to go. Fulfilled, take a joy fulfilled in it. with right. that. Right. Right. That's all I was going to add. And that's a diff that's a difficult thing because you never know when you're there. Well, well, you, will, well you will when you get to heaven. You that's what I was going to say. Know, <laughs> <laughs> you probably won't recognize it before. Here, that's right, yeah. Wait, Here's hold on. I'm, th that's kind of a challenge in its own right. Right. right? See, I would say, I, I mean, I'd want to bring the two together. that Because um, you you made it when we, who is it that, um, well, you, said thought, you said that was St. Thomas, that's a good, a good thing, thing to be. It's right. a good yeah. thing. Right. 
because you were recognizing the, um, that you don't have to be St. Thomas, that each one of us has something unique. So what you're doing right now is just affirming that again, I think in light of this, wait, 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 hold on. Um, and I was gonna go beyond, not just be comfortable with it, um, because and I think as Suzanne said, I don't think any of us are gonna know the complete joy of it until the debts are paid, the trial's over, we're in the presence of God, but prior to that, as a part of the, jo or the journey, it seems to me there, there has to be some way that you accept yourself, who you are, and realize there's something in you that nobody else has, and um, the question for you is how to fulfill it, knowing your faith, trusting that there's a joy in it that you'll take as you do it, with all the sorrows of the world, because I don't, I don't know of a saint here who doesn't care, Paul, the world is groaning, you know, that, that we're here on a cross in a burden, we bear a cross, but we, like the disciples when they came out of the temple after quarreling, they took a joy in the burdens they were taking on because they knew that brought them that much closer to Christ. So that when we do that in the world, there may be, a, probably be likely be a cross because it sets us against the world, but hopefully we undertake it with some trust and some partial experience of a joy going, knowing that, I mean, from everything, certainly Dante shows us that the ultimate end of that is going to be a joy beyond describing. This beauty and order and radiance that's, and he makes it clear that this is so different from the world. You know, when he said, the, the, what did he call that line I just read a few minutes ago about how insane and unjust the world was and the order and beauty and peace in God's order, the harmony and light and <coughs> Pardon? Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. It, it was. It, it wasn't so much a question, I guess, as just trying to help me clarify. You know, what I read. Yeah, and I think hidden in there. I mean, I, I don't. I may be reading it. I'm not sure, but I don't know if there's that nagging question of predestination. I don't want to go there. No, if it's, that's it's not. not. Yeah. Okay, it's not. I. It's. It's more of a. You know, how do you. How do you get comfortable with that journey? Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you look at this pretty, I mean, it's, uh, if I try to put the whole thing, it's not painless. Dante had to look at hell. I mean, if we put the, if we keep the whole in mind, and he's got to go back to the world. Imagine how, if anybody, if anybody had seen God, what would you, what would, what in the world, Paul came back from the third heaven. I, and I'm taking that. We never get that, but it, could, it had to be extraordinary. We want to come back. Yeah, when you, if you come back to the world, comfortable? I mean, we're on another, <coughs> you know. Well, it's like Father Flynn said, if you pray and bring me back, I'm really going to be upset with you. If I want to it to heaven. <laughs> Here, let's finish. Um... Bernard makes a prayer. I want to look at these two, um, this one last metaphor, because I think it's beautiful. The prayer is given, and Dante sees God. This is the end towards which he's been moving all along. 582, O light supreme, so far beyond the reach of mortal understanding to my mind, relent now some small part of your own self and give <coughs> my tongue eloquence enough to capture just one spark. Remember now, Dante's back home. Remember, this whole thing has been written. So all of this is after the fact. 
There are two Dantes. There's the poet who's been with us all along describing the natural man, the, the man who took the journey. And he's always recalling it. So in some sense, he's living in both worlds constantly. Um, Relent now some small part of your own self and give to my tongue eloquence enough to capture just one spark of your glory that I may leave for funeral generations. For by returning briefly to my mind and sounding even faintly in my verse, more of your might will be revealed to men. If I had turned my eyes away, I think from the sharp brilliance of the living ray which they endured, I would have lost my senses. And this, as I recall, gave me more strength to keep on gazing till I would unite my vision with the infinite worth I see. This is the end of every mythic, to be united with God, to be one with him. O grace abounding, allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it. How could it be otherwise? I saw how it contains within its depth all things bound in a single book by love, of which creation is the scattered leaves. It's so important to remember that God is simple. There's no complexity to God. He's simple. The multiplicity and complexity comes in in our world. The great effort is to try to recover that simplicity. And I'm assuming everybody knows how hard that is. But he's looking in God and he's seeing the simplicity, the union of all things. Here's the great metaphor, simile. I know I saw the universal form, the fusion of all things, for I can feel while speaking now my heart leap up in joy. I want, I want your response to this simile. Make sense of it here. One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that Neptune, stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. And so my mind was totally entranced and gazing deeply, motionless, intent. And once and one is so transformed within that light that it would be impossible to think of ever turning one's eyes from that side. He didn't want to leave it. Because the good which is the goal of will is all collected there and outside of it all is defective that is perfect there. What is that simile? What's the function of it? One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought to quest that stunned Newton, Neptune when he saw the Argos. Jason and the Argonauts, remember we were on this quest for the Golden Fleece? the great thing that thought would change their lives. It, the simile describes Neptune as being shocked to, to, to witness, this is a god, shocked to witness this human endeavor. It's, it's like the barbarian standing in front of Rome. But here's a god looking at this ship, which is an amazing, I think an amazing tribute to men and what men are capable of doing. So he's making a comparison between what happens to him and what happened to Neptune. One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. Can anybody explain that? I, I, I can tell you what it meant to me. I mean, if you, if you kind of think of yourself as on the threshold of infinity, you know, it, it, you know, when before you just before you get there, you still have a past, a present, and a future, right? But you make that that last step and then suddenly the whole history, everything goes away. Yeah. You're like, I, you know, I, I can't even imagine what that, that must be like. But if at one, one moment you, you, look, you look back, there's a history, you look forward, there's a future, you, you're living in your present, but, but for, for God, all of those things are, are one and the same. That must, that must, when you, when you make that transition, I, I, I would be 
awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that's a weak word, you know. I don't know how, I don't know how else to say it, you know. I'm running out of vocabulary. I, um, this experience, Donnie, hand plunges in, in to something like a stupor that can only be explained in terms of 25 centuries because he's holding it all. That's, I mean, imagine looking at God and not falling into a stupor or a wonder, something that's over overpowering. He's plunged into this stupor um, greater than that that, that that consisted of 25 centuries from that time forward. Um, it's, it's a stunning simile. <clears throat> um, let's finish. Now that within the living light there was more than a soul aspect of the divine, which is, is what always it has been, yet as I learned to see more and the power of vision grew in me, that single aspect as I changed seemed to change me. He's looking at God. He wants more. Remember, the, the natural desire for all of us is to return, to, to look on the face of God, infinity. And as he looks, he sees more, and he finds himself changing as that vision changes. Because it would naturally, I mean, something's happening to him too. O light eternal fixed in self alone, known only to you, and knowing self, you love and glow, knowing and being known. We were made in his image. We were meant to love and be loved. We were meant to know and be known. That's our relation to him. Nobody, if we're not known by God, nobody knows us because he's the only one who knows us fully. O light eternal fixed in self alone, known only to yourself and knowing self, you love and glow, knowing and being known. Remember the Trinity shared that. That certainly which as I conceived it shown in you as your own first reflected light when I had looked deep into it a while. <clears throat> seemed in itself and in its own self-color to be depicted with man's very image. My aunt, there it is, he's looking at the Trinity and in the middle of it is God that somehow images man. My eyes were totally absorbed in it as the geometer who tries so hard to square the circle but cannot discover, think as he made the principle involved. So did I strive with this new mystery? He's looking at the sun the third person, or the second, second person, but um, with man's image. How can that be? It seems to me something has got to be lessened a little bit because we know God created us in his image, so there's some affinity there. But what Christ did in taking on our nature takes it a much further step. Did I strive within this new mystery? I yearn to know how... How could our image fit into that circle? How could it conform? But my own wings could not take me so high. Then a great flash of understanding struck my mind, and suddenly its wish was granted. The prayers of Bernard and Mary um, helped him have his wish fulfilled. He wanted to see God, the Trinity, and he did. And what held him up was this confusion about how man's image, how how Christ could have gone back to heaven in the image of a human being and still take his place with the Father and Spirit. At this point, power failed, high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will, my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars, and he's returned to the earthly order again. Um, just one last thought here, I'll go back to the body. Um, Dante can't find words to describe this. I mean, how could he? There's, um, 
How, how in the world? How in the world? Couldn't. Huh? You couldn't. Yeah. How in the world do you? The incarnation is the great mystery of our faith. That a God, that a God would have taken on our nature so that we could take on Him. That we could become adopted sons. That's Paul. Um, so in one sense, when I look at the end of this, particularly if I think about the action, you know, the the word that I be, the plot, the action of the Paradiso. The action of the Paradiso is, is moving away from Virgil's world. This rich, I, I, I don't want to do less by him. This extraordinary understanding of, the, of all that's good in creation that Virgil could leave us with. But from that point on, from the time that Virgil leaves to the time when Dante sees God, we've entered into a world of Christian mysteries. And at every stage, Beatrice has been competent to throw some light on to help them see something. We go into the supernatural virtues, the, 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 cate the catechetical examinations, faith, hope, and love, and, and, we, and we move in and out of um, stages of mysticism. Silence, quiet, Beatrice can't smile. Dante's learning to put the world away, this contemptuous Monday, to look back and see how paltry the world is. It's, remember, it's, a, it's something that began in the purgatorio. To, to, to get rid, to shed our worldliness, to learn to put the world away in order to move closer to God. So um, the whole action of the Paradiso is one of joy. And right at the center of that action is that discourse by Solomon on the glory of the body. And then it ends with this, Dante trying to, wanting to see how the circle could conform to the human person. And it seems to me one of the things we're meant to take away from this, this is a glory the Protestant world doesn't know. It, it, it's too contemptuous of the physical stuff, the world, the body. What Dante's doing is glorifying. Remember, um, Saint, um, Solomon had a thousand wives. Tunisia had four husbands and two lovers right in the middle of the room. And there's that wonderful, I, I wanted to go into it, we didn't do it, but there's a wonderful play on a sexual image in that section on Saul that I, I mean on Solomon I didn't get to. There's this extraordinary glorification of the body. And here, it, it ends that way. This is the central mystery. We're not angels. We are not angels. We carry this contempt of the body. We mistreat it badly. There's almost nothing in the world that celebrates us the way our Catholic Church does, the Eucharist. Our understanding is of the real presence, that every time we take it, we're taking in the body and blood of Christ. He took on the body. We shouldn't have the problems that we do, but we do. It's our world. But here in this book, Dante's done everything he can, it seems to me, to, to give a glory to human, to our human nature. We were made humans, not angels. God did an extraordinary thing by giving us the nature that we did. What in the modern world helps us to take a pleasure in that nature? So. What, what you said then, when you say that we have been made in the image of God, we're not talking about the physical image. We're talking about our nature, our soul. We're not talking about the physical image. Mm -mm. Yeah. You mean, if by that you mean that God doesn't have anything physical to him, so... Well, when you say we're made in his image, right? what is image? What I, my understanding of that, David, is when we're made in his image that we have an intellect and a will. Those are two of the defining qualities. He loves, he wills, we love, we will. 
God doesn't have a body, so we're not made in his image in that way, but, but we have a self the way he does. We, we have a particular identity. In our case, you can't separate it from our bodies because we, we don't separate. Descartes, Kant, the moderns, even some aspects of Plato separate the body. And so Aristotle doesn't. The, the, the soul and body can't be separated for a human when, when we die. That, I mean, it goes to Fred's question months ago about how, how can you recognize souls because they don't have a body? Because we never lose the imprint. We're, and and our, understand, our belief is that the body will be resurrected, that we will come. We, we will be joined again because that's our nature. And when that happens, from Dante and our church understanding, is that body will be a glorified, transformed body. It won't be like the bodies that we know. The, the point that I'm trying to underscore here is that the, the Paradiso ends with Dante wanting to see the Trinity, but more specifically wanting to see Christ and how the human image could conform to something divine and infinite. Um, because Christ changed all that. Plato once said in the Republic, <clears throat> he, didn't, he didn't like Homer because he, he thought gods can't shift shape, change, shape shift. They can't change. Because any time a god changes, they're going to lose something. For Plato, the god had to be complete, unchanging. Unchanging. If he took on another nature, he'd be something other than what he was. He had to be complete in itself. That's, to me, that's a pretty cogent argument that God is complete. It's close to Christianity in making that. But think about what happened. I mean, if that's so, I mean, it, in, according to reason, it makes sense to me. What happened when God, second the Son, emptied himself and took on a human nature? The incarnation is, is <laughs> if, there was, if there was any reason for doubting Christianity and want to stay away with it, from it, it would be that. Because on the face of it, it looks so unreal. And, and I, to go back to you know the, the reading today when Christ said, "Unless you eat of my drink of my blood," that was a, that was against the Jewish law. The greater number of disciples left because that was horrifying for them to contemplate. So, if there's a reason for leaving the church, it seems to what did all the Reformation thinkers do? Every one of them did away with the Eucharist. Wait, just one second. So. It, it's a reason for leaving the church because on the surface it's so absurd. And yet the Father's words in the homily were, it, it's, it's such an extraordinary part of our faith that it was the faith of the disciples that kept them there because if they were left to their reason, they would have done what the others did and left. <clears throat> so the most extraordinary mystery at the center of our faith is exactly this. So were Adam and Eve transfigured? and then lost it in the fall? <coughs> or were they still something less than? No, I'd say they're fully human. I, I but, mean, was, but was their body the transfigured body? Oh, I don't believe so, no. So they were still something less than what we will ultimately become. Right. They will too. I mean, they'll, they will be with heaven and I mean, in God, or I mean, heaven with God, and when the bodies are resurrected, theirs will be. See, I take, I take them as I look at ourselves but perfect, and not given to that subject-object dualism that I think is one of the effects that... Remember, for Dante, we weren't corrupted by the fall. We were wounded. For the Protestant, generally, we were corrupted, um, <coughs> depraved. 
So I take it they were, but maybe they had something of a more glorified body than we have, I'm not sure, but I do believe that they had a, a greater oneness, that the, the nature of knowledge then was a beholding, it wasn't a dichotomy, um, but they didn't have a glorified body. That, that only happened because of Christ. <clears throat> because he changed everything when he took on our bodies. He, he, he brought a divine nature into it. I mean, the whole church teaching is God took on our human nature so that we could take on something divine. The, the whole call was, the great glory was to, that we would be offered something better by the nature of his love for us. So all the people before Christ won't be transfigured? No, no, no. That they all will. All, all human beings, but by virtue of going to heaven yeah. and, and receiving their bodies back at the resurrection, all people will share. That, I mean, it has to be in heaven. They're all going to share the... Because Christ did that for everybody. Christ came down, that the people thereafter Christ were going to be different than the ones before. Because he wasn't, he wasn't there. He hadn't emptied himself yet. Yeah. The way that Dante shows it is the, those before Christ and those who believed in him. And, but all of them were going to... All of us are going to have... But why would they be separate in the rows? If they ultimately all achieved some equivalent level of understanding. I mean, my, my only simple guess, I mean, answer is that um, there's something to be, it's like Thomas with the fingers and, you know, I'll believe when I, there, there has to be, there has to be something great about a person who believed in Christ before he came. That to me is really heroic. It's it, part of what distinguishes them as individuals. And there's something to be said for those who believed in when he came. They had the support of miracles and you know, people before didn't. I don't know if it isn't just a matter of going back to your, you know, your, your observation earlier about the things that make us distinct or individual that are part of our characters. Honestly, I don't know. That was one of them, huh? I don't know. Oh, that's the, that's the rose. You might pass that around, take a look at it. It's the, it's the image of the rose. Any questions? My brain has Mickey. no more capacity. Mickey, <laughs> what do you got? Wow. I don't believe that. Wow. I don't believe that. Okay, next week we do... We put this together.